Now, Father, we come to you and we ask that you would help us to remember the mystery of the incarnation. That you, the king of the universe, came in the flesh to bring peace to these rebellious children that we are. Uh, to mediate uh, between uh, warring parts of your humanity. That you came into the darkness with the light of Advent. That you yourself were willing to establish a beachhead of love and mercy and forgiveness in this world by showing us how to live and by showing us that we're loved. Uh, Father, that you rise with healing in your wings. And certainly, we need healing. And you were born so that we may not die. And you died so that we might be born anew. And so, Father, there's so many things uh, that our minds are given to during holiday seasons. But may we again take a step back and think about the wonder of it all. That the, what we're saying, that you, our Savior, God's Son, came into this world, would we ponder the mystery of it all? That you're a God unlike any other God. And Father, we pray that during this um, few minutes and tonight at the concert, if we come back for that, that all day would be a day of worship that our hearts would expand because they're just way too small right now. They can't possibly take in everything that you are and everything that you promised to be to us. So, Father, make our hearts burst with gospel grace and renewal. Uh, Lead those of us who have no hope into hopeful pastures of what you've done and of what you will do. And remind us of the gift of the gospel of grace. We pray these things in your name. Amen. Uh, You uh, have no idea of the gifts that you already have. I don't know about your house. But at my house already we have Amazon showing up. Packages. Right? And our kids already have gifts. They've already been bought. They've already been delivered. Some of them have already been wrapped. Some of them are hidden because our kids have gotten older and they know how to find, you know, where they are. We had to, like, move several different hiding places over the years. But they already have established gifts. You have no idea of the gifts that you have. And one day, in just two weeks from now, on Christmas, you'll be able to open some of those gifts that have been delivered. How do you all do that in your family? Uh, for us, anyway, uh, we have all the stocking stuff already out. And uh, I, you know, I've never spent Christmas Eve with my family in 15 years. I spend it with you, my other family. So Elizabeth is at home wrapping gifts while I'm here going through all the services. And I'll get home and I'll start wrapping some gifts that she has left over. She sits Indian style and does it on the floor for hours. I don't know how women do that. I have to be like on the operating table, you know, with everything up there so I can wrap. And then uh, we finally fall in bed and the kids come down and they do the stockings and then uh, we stop. And I read the, uh, the story in the Magnificat from Luke from Matthew. And then we pray. And then we uh, eat. We make uh, breakfast, omelets, and French cream eggs, and fruit, and sausage biscuits, and bacon, and 
pancakes and all. We just put ourselves into kind of a, a food coma. And then after that, we go and we find the pickle. There's a pickle in the tree, apparently. I don't know where that came from, but you find the pickle in the tree, and whoever finds that first, they start to open the gift first, and then we go descending order down, each person taking one at a time, a gift at a time, not just this carnage of gifts. Everybody does one at a time, and then we celebrate the gifts for the rest of the day. Well, here's what I want to say. During this Christmas season, God has given you gifts, and you get to open them. All throughout this Advent season, we want to talk about the gifts that God has given you. Because here's the reality. Advent is way better than Amazon showing up at your door. You already have the gifts of the gospel that have been secured and bought and wrapped for you. And all you have to do as a Christian is learn how to unwrap the gospel into your life again this morning. That's all we want to do. And here's why the gifts of Advent are better than Amazon. Because most gifts that you get will be consumed. What happens with the gift of the gospel is it actually changes you. It transforms you. And so this letter to the Corinthian church addresses this issue of learning how to be a generous people. Uh, The Corinthian church were pretty wealthy people. They were part of a trade organization. They were right there on the port. They had a lot of money. And Paul's writing to them saying, now that the gospel has come into your life, it should change you. You should be radically different. You should be transformed. This is not something, the gospel isn't something you just consume and you hoard, and you keep it to yourself, because of the gift of the gospel, it should radically change change and transform you. And it should start with generosity. Uh, The Corinthians were a rich people. Americans are a rich people. And and the almighty dollar still kind of rules this country, right? Uh, Here's proof of that. Justin Verlander just got a contract because he he has a unique ability of throwing a little white ball through a little strike zone. Verlander will make more in a year than an entire school district of elementary school teachers will make in their lifetime. Justin Verlander will make more in a year than probably all the nurses combined for Prisma. I don't know that to be true, but it's got to be close. Over their lifetime, not just a year, over their lifetime. The almighty dollar still reigns. Something has gone horribly wrong. Matter of fact, I don't know who said it, but somebody at Twitter said, and I couldn't track down who the original source was, so let's just call it anonymous. If Paul saw the American church, we'd probably be getting a letter too. And I wonder what would be in it. Because we've gotten massively off the plot line. Stephen Reel, who uh, led worship for us, he's our headmaster. I love Stephen and his wife, Melanie. They have a grandkid, Riley. And uh, they were playing um, this game with her where, you know, they just store. You know, you're buying fruit from this little plastic store, and they're going to give her money, and she's going to give them some fruit. You know how you play with your grandkids, three-year-old, two-year-old grandkid like that. And uh, Melanie got a dollar out of her wallet and handed it to uh, Riley. and, And Riley took it and looked at it. And then folded up into the smaller rectangle and then swiped it <laughs> and gave it back. Like, I don't, I don't know what to do with this currency. I know how to do with a credit card. Like, I know how to do that. But I, don't know what to, I don't know how to make change. I don't know how to do any of this kind of stuff. So we are massively off. And even our conceptualizing of understanding what is valuable, what's not valuable. So let's attack this. Uh, Four points. The point, the person, provision, and prayer. Uh, Number one, the point. 
Paul states it, verse 6, the point is this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. Whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things and at all times, you may abound in every good work. This is 2 Corinthians 9, verses uh, 6 through 8. I'm not sure that's on the screen, uh, but you can find it in your Bibles. So the farming analogy here is this, that if you sow sparingly, you will reap sparingly. He's using this agriculture uh, understanding that when you're a farmer, the faith of the farmer is to take all the revenue from the prior year, everything that you've earned financially, and put it back in the ground. And you can't do that reluctantly. You can't be frugal with it. You've got to spread that seed and you've got to sow that seed as much as you can and as much as you want. You you don't want to be reluctant in any way. You've got to sow that seed so that you can harvest another crop. You don't do it under compulsion. You do it with cheer. So it says at the end of verse uh, 7, For God loves a cheerful giver, and so do you. Don't you love cheerful givers? There's 11 people, adults, in Elizabeth's family on her side. So we don't buy for each other. Uh, We draw names, and one person buys for another person. That's the way it works. And you can't spend more than $40. So I drew my brother-in-law, Russ, who's married to Elizabeth's sister, and he drew me. And so as soon as we drew each other, I texted him, and I said, Look, let's be honest. Neither one of us want to do this. So here's how it's going to work. I'm going to Venmo you $39, and you're going to Venmo me $40 so that you can say I'm cheap and you're more generous. And he's like, done. So we Venmo, and, and what he didn't realize is I actually made a buck off that deal. Like he didn't quite conceptualize that, but he gets to be more generous, you know, because we both didn't want to. Now, I, that works with Russ. That never works with Elizabeth. <laughs> On Sunday morning, two weeks from now, I can't say, here, babe, here's a robe. I didn't want to buy you anything this year. I mean, I don't feel like you've been a great wife, but you, I knew you were going to buy me something, so here you go. Who wants that kind of giver? <laughs> I mean, that must, we would be in council. We would be re-engaged so quick if that happened. We love cheerful givers. People that realize that they're giving out of abundance and sometimes not even having the full resources to give, but cheerfully to say, I want to plant I want to harvest something from you. I want to give of myself to you. I want to be a cheerful giver. Why? Because of verse 8. And God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. See, if you take the analogy and tease it out, God says, look, I, I want you to sow bountifully so you can reap bountifully. And I'm sowing my Holy Spirit into your life so that you might abound. See, in Christianity, the gift is already secured, not so in Hinduism. Hinduism, you have to go find it. You've got to reach nirvana. In Christianity, the gift is already secured in Christ. It's already been given to you. All you have to do is unwrap it. Not so in moralism. In moralism, you've got to earn it with your sweat equity. 
Uh, in Christianity, uh, the gift has already uh, been paid for. It's already been distributed broadly. Not so in Islam. You've got to pay it back to Muhammad. You've got to earn your way back in Buddhism. You've got to do all of these other kind of things. In Christianity, the gift is already there. It's already been wrapped. It's already been paid for. It's already been distributed. And all of Christianity, if we realize it and understand it correctly this Advent season, all of Christianity is a gift to you. Not a burden. Not an obligation. Not something that you have to pay back. It's a gift. So Brendan Manning writes this. It's a long quote, but bear with me. For grace proclaims the awesome truth that all is gift. All that is good is ours, and not by right, but by the sheer bounty of a gracious God. And while there is much we may have earned, our degree, our salary, our home, and garden, a miller light, and a good night's sleep, all this is possible only because we've been given so much. Life itself. Eyes to see and hands to touch and a mind to shape ideas and a heart to beat with love. We've been given God in our souls, in Christ in our flesh. We have the power to believe where others deny, to hope where others despair, to love where others hurt. This and so much more is a sheer gift. It's not reward for our faithfulness our generous disposition, or our heroic life of prayer, even fidelity, meaning faithfulness, is a gift. If we but turn to God, said St. Augustine, that itself is a gift of God, meaning repentance is a gift. My deepest awareness of myself is that I'm deeply loved by Jesus Christ and I've done nothing to earn it or to deserve it. That's the point. Here's the person. Verse 9, as it is written, he has distributed freely... He has given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. He supplies seed to the sower, and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. In other words, here's what he does. Paul hits to the heart. And Paul says in this next section, I know if I'm calling you to be generous, you think you're going to run out. But God will resupply. He always supplies. And God, the character of God is this. He distributes freely. In other words, the argument for Paul to the Corinthians is this. Your God is not stingy. Imagine how awful Christianity would be if he was. Imagine if God said, I'll forgive your sins for the first year. But after that, you should know better by then. I'll forgive him for five years. Or imagine if God said, I'll forgive uh, 750 of your sins. Imagine how awful Christianity would be. Where you're having to keep track and and the fear and the anxiety. But, But that's not Christianity at all. And that's why it's so radical. God says, forgive 70 times 7. I'm going to forgive you more than double all of your sins. I'm going to forgive your sins past, present, and future. I'm going to distribute my love, my mercy, my grace, and my forgiveness to you liberally. And all I ask is you go do the same with others because the gospel has changed you. That's what I ask of you. Can I tell you my first mistake as a pastor? I wasn't even a pastor. I was 15. I had just become a believer. And uh, we, in this little country church I was in, 
um, where I became a believer, they used to do a youth Sunday and the youth would lead worship and they would even have a youth, uh, a high school kid preach. We're never doing that here. Uh, I, I've got some high school kids. Trust me, they will never preach from this pulpit. And they would have a youth person do the children's sermon. And uh, all the kids would come down. And that was my role. I got picked to do the children's sermon. And I thought about it. And I wanted to talk about the grace of God. And I found this illustration. I was going to use a quarter. How many of you want a quarter? And I had it all planned out in my mind. It was my first time ever public speaking. And I was, said, look, this is a free gift. If you just take it, I'll give it right to you. And I think kids were like, I don't know. And finally one kid raised her hand. I'm like, good, you get the gift. There's no strings attached. You get it. I closed up that sermon. I thought I led all those kids to the Lord. And uh, I went back, and the kid went like halfway down the aisle, and then the one with the quarter, and then he came back up, and he placed it on the stage because he just couldn't convince his little heart, and apparently I didn't convince his little heart. It's a gift, and it's free, and you don't have to do anything for it. His immediate reaction was, this can't possibly be free. I've got to give it back. I'm going to get in trouble if I take this. It can't possibly, the gospel can't possibly be as true as it is. Oh, friends, it is. God distributes freely and he makes you righteous. Look at what it says. His righteousness endures forever. The end of verse 9. And then at the end of verse 10, riffing off this analogy, he says it will increase the harvest of your righteousness. Increase the harvest of your righteousness. You know what? That word righteousness is, uh, the Greek word is the kaiosune, which means to make one right. What makes you right in this world? Your accomplishments? Your achievements? Selling the company? Getting the third, second, fourth house? Being known in your business? Having your kids all walk with the Lord? Being known on social media, being liked in high school. Look, you're, everybody's groping for some kind of righteousness, something that makes you feel right with this world. And what the gospel says is this Yes, I've paid for your sins. I've done that on the cross. But I'm also giving you my righteousness, a, a harvest of righteousness. And here's how you're made right you have a heavenly Father who loves you who sent his son to care for us and establish a beachhead of grace in this life and the Holy Spirit to remind you constantly that all of your sin has been paid for and gives you constantly everything you need for life and godliness and he's never going to be frugal and you'll never run out of the storehouse of his grace. I've quoted it before, but it's been a couple years and let me quote it again. That old hymn from Andy Johnson Flint He gives more grace when the burden grows greater. He sends more strength when the labors increase. To added affliction, he adds his mercy. And to multiply trials, his multiplied peace. When we have exhausted our store of endurance and when our strength has failed us and the day is half done, when we reach the end of our hoarded resources, Our Father's full giving has only begun. His love has no limit. His grace has no mercy. His power has no boundary known unto men. For out of the infinite riches in Jesus, 
He gives and he giveth and he giveth again. That's your God. Not a God who's stingy. A God who loves you dramatically. So the provision, that's the person, the provision, verse 11, you'll be enriched in every way, to be generous in every way, which will produce thanksgiving to God. For the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but is also overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. In other words, he says, I want, I want you to have the greatest gift. Jeremiah Burroughs, the Puritan, calls it the rare jewel that is Christian contentment. That in the gospel, you're okay with what you don't have and you're okay with what you do have. You make peace with both. You make peace with your wealth and you make peace with your poverty. You're okay on both sides. It's Christian contentment. In other words, I want you to have thanksgiving. That's what I want you to have. Many thanksgiving towards God. Now let me go back to the context here a little bit. What's happening? Why is he writing to the Corinthian church? Paul's writing to the Corinthian church because the Christians in Jerusalem are in the middle of a famine. And they literally can't feed their kids. And so leveraging his relationships, he's writing to the Colossians, to the Macedonians, to uh, many others. And the Macedonians had already given. And he's writing to the Corinthians, hey, y'all are wealthy. You, You don't struggle eating. These Christians in Jerusalem do struggle eating. Can you send some money their way so they can buy bread for their kids? That's what he's asking for. And he says, look, verse 12, it's a ministry of service in supplying the needs to the saints. In other words, a baguette. A pita. It's a ministry to do these things for the people in need. And it will overflow in your heart thanksgiving. In other words, you get to be a part. Your money matters. And you get to be a part of establishing love in this world. Now, let me say this. I I should have said this at the beginning. You can relax because uh, some of you have been around church for a while, or like, I know what's about to happen. He's about to announce a capital campaign. No, I'm not. I'm not. We're, uh, we're, I've said this before, but let me just say it again. We're completely debt-free as an institution. All the buildings, all the land, all the property, church and school, uh, because of faithful and generous people, and sometimes just the high school kid who has learned how to tithe. But that doesn't mean... There's not more to do. There's churches to plant. There's missionaries to send. There's generations of kids in our middle school and elementary school that have to be raised because this world is going to raise them if we don't. Uh, There's places of this city that don't know the gospel. There's people in Greenville. I know it looks great. I know we're like one of the 10 best of everything on every list. But there's people in this city that you know that don't know Jesus. There's incredible poverty. There's racism. There's a lack of justice. There's, there we have so many needs. We have so many things to do, friends. So I'm not asking uh, for any funds right now. I'm asking you to open your heart to the idea that you might live generously because of the gift that has been given to you. And I'm not asking to raise support for a nonprofit, but I'm asking for you to think of giving not as raising money, but as an act of worship. An act of worship where you say, okay, God, 
This is all yours anyway. I'm going to release myself from the bondage of trying to hoard my resources by trusting you. And this is worship to you, not just raising support. And that was the prayer of the church in Jerusalem. Look at verse 13. Last point. By their approval of this service, they will glorify God because of your submission that comes from your confession of the gospel of Christ and the generosity of your contribution for them and for all others. While they long for you and pray for you because of the surpassing grace of God upon you. And so the prayer was actually from the uh, Christians in Jerusalem praying for the Corinthians. What were they praying? That they would be submissive and that they would be generous because of the submission that comes from your confession of the gospel of Christ. Oh, in other words, the Jewish uh, Christians in Jerusalem were basically saying, may those Corinthians, may they understand submission. The submission is not reluctant obedience to somebody else's will. Submission is a little bit more like going into the doctor's office or the lawyer's office while you're way out of your element and you you don't know what to do. You're so confused with the treatment options. You're so confused with the possible roads. You know that this person knows what's best and you don't. And you finally say to them, whatever you think is best, you just tell me what to do. It's not, I want to not be in here. You're making me do it. I will now submit to you. No, submission essentially is saying, I'm going to trust you with whatever you think is good for my life. I will trust you with that. And that's what we do with our father. We we go to him and we say, whatever you think is good for how I should talk, how I should spend my money, how I should spend my time, who I should feel, whatever you think is good, I'm submitting myself to you because of the gospel of Christ. And it makes me generous. Generosity is beautiful. You know, if you think about it, it's what everybody learns at Christmas. Charles Dickens, National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation, the Jelly of the Month Club instead of the bonus. You know, some, what, what did you say? Sometimes things look good on paper. When you see real people, they don't look as good. That's about the only line that I can quote from that movie without getting fired. <laughs> the Grinch. All of them learn to be generous, to be open-handed. That's what Christmas is about. But if there's a sequel made about any one of those movies, if we are honest, I don't think it'd stick. Because they've been changed by being guilty or being convicted or seeing little Cindy Lou Who or whatever. But they haven't been changed by the gospel. The gospel is what makes it stick. Understanding that we have a God who is generous with us. And look at what he says. At the very end, this is typical Paul. He goes on and on, and he finally gets, uh, much like in Ephesians and other places, he'll get into a place where in Greek it's a run-on sentence because he just gets too excited. And the run-on sentence is this, and thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. The wonder of it all, that our God would come to us in Advent that he would come to us and be perfect in every way and win our righteousness and forgive our sins and give us the gift of life and being able to invest in this eternal kingdom which will pay eternal dividends, this inexpressible gift, the gift of the gospel is not meant for you to consume or to hoard 
Most gifts you get are going to be consumed or hoarded. I've got two daughters, and uh, I did that in the first service, too. I, like, sighed. I got two daughters. Um, And they'll get a box of clothes for Christmas. Because, you know, in our family, our kids know if you ask us for anything, starting in, like, April, the answer from uh, Elizabeth and Andy is going to be, just wait till Christmas. Just wait till Christmas. Dad, I need a new basketball. Just wait for Christmas. Uh, I, I need a food. No, just wait for Christmas. Just, you'll be fine. So they get a box of clothes. When Kate and Maggie gets a box of you know, clothes and they're looking at the spandex, uh, they never share with each other. They're never going to they're, they're say, you wear this first. I want you to, no, they're going to hoard it. That's how most gifts are. You get a gift, you keep it to yourself. But the gift of the gospel is different. It's meant to be shared. Like if I bought you a row of seats for the World Cup championship, none of you would say, I'd love to have the leg room. That's great. I'm going to sit there on that row by myself. It's meant to be shared. You're going to think long and hard about who you're going to take, how you're going to fill up that space, how you're going to fill up your table. And this inexpressible gift of the gospel is meant to make us generous, not just with your finances, but with your language and with your love and with your mercy and with your forgiveness and with your kindness and with your graciousness. You can be generous in many ways beyond just finances. And that's what the gift of the gospel is meant to do. I'll close with this last phrase from Robert Capon. Grace is a celebration of life. If Advent is anything, it's a celebration of life. Relentlessly hounding all the non-celebrants in the world. It is a floating cosmic bass shouting its way through the streets of the universe until the prodigals come out and dance. And the elder brothers take their fingers out of their ears. Hey, so if you're a prodigal, Come out and dance because Christ is one. You know, when the Moroccans win, the Moroccans come out in droves of all those cities in Eastern Europe and dance and run down the streets. That's what the gospel should make you do. If you're a prodigal and don't know the grace of Jesus, he wants to make you celebrate. And if you're an older brother, this most of you, Most of them are going to be not on that side, but most probably at this church will be older brothers who still have their fingers in the ear, who don't want to hear about the grace of God, who want to somehow earn it so they can take credit for it. For the love of God, take your fingers out of your ears and celebrate the mystery of the incarnation and the inexpressible, never to be exhausted, gift of grace to you. And now let's celebrate today, tonight, the rest of this season until Christ comes back. Father, we pray now as we sing this last song and uh, as many of us will come back tonight for the concerts that you would do what we prayed earlier, which is expand our hearts and bring us a joy. Release us from the bondages of Uh, so many things in this life that we hoard and that we keep to ourselves make us liberal in generosity.
of spirit, of heart, of mind, uh, that the gospel would change us, that this gift would change us. We pray in your name. Amen. Let's stand and let's sing joy to the world.